Father God, this morning we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. These songs are all about you. Glory to you this morning as we sing and as we dive into your word. We pray it in your name. Amen. You guys can be seated. And kids, normally I'm going to dismiss you, but I'm going to have you pause for just a second. I'm going to have you pause for just a second. I want you to stand up. I want all the kids to stand up because you're going to leave here in just a second. But what I want you to do is I want all the people in here, I want you to take a look at all the kids that are standing up. I also want you to look at all the workers. I know the workers love that fact that I'm making them all have to be stared at right now. But I want you to see our kids and the amazing group that we have and the amazing workers who are going to go back there and invest in each and every one of these kids. Kids, I'm going to go ahead and let you go. As you go, I want the parents, I want the rest of the congregation to do me a favor and begin to think about these questions. How important is it that we as a church invest in these kids? How important is it as that we put effort into every Sunday to make sure that these kids hear the gospel on their level with their group of friends, with their age group, and, and are able to just check all the things out about the glories of Jesus, about the glories of God, and hear that and apply that in their own lives? Why do we teach them what we do? Why is it important that parents that you're bringing them why is it important that our workers are investing in them why is it so important that we are a part of a church and that your kids and these kids are a part of a church I think the answer is obvious when you look at the world around us that they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear about the love of Jesus. They need to hear about the hope that is found in the gospel. And really, I think the question is, is when we send the kids back there, I know, because my kids go back there as well, I know that it's great to be able to worship in here without the maybe extra distraction sometimes when you're kids. I was that extra distraction as a child, by the way. I'm not, I'm not sure if you're aware of that. But sometimes it's that. But it's so much more than just, hey, we're sending them to a class. We're sending them to learn about Jesus. We're sending them to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. That is why we do what we do with the kids. But the question expands bigger than that. Why do we do what we do here at church? Why do we attend? What is the end goal? Well, the end goal, I'm going to walk over here and I'm going to grab this sign because this is a sign that we've had for quite a while. And as we've had it for quite a while, I apologize for those of you who are sitting on the side, you may not get to see it. It's been up here. It's on the wall when you walk in. It's on the first front page of our website. But sometimes it becomes white noise. We see something over and over and over again. We forget why we do what we do. This sign tells us why we do what we do. And as I begin to look at it, the first thing I think of is connection. Why do we need to get connected? Why do we push connection groups? And really, it's as it says right here on the top, I can't do life alone. I can't do this life alone. Second one I see is evangelism. Evangelism found people 
find people. If you ever go to the book of John, and you look at John chapter 1, verses 35 through 46, if you have watched the Chosen series at all, the, the, the one that, that follows uh, Jesus, and it's uh, just a great series. But one of the things they say is, is come and see. Found people, find people. And they share those words. Discipleship. Why do we do discipleship? Well, growing people change. Why change? Why change? Nobody really likes change. I'm fine being just the way that I am. But God wants us to be more like him. Jesus wants us to be more like him. That is why he came to change our hearts to be more like him. That is the process of discipleship. Growing people change. Worship. Sometimes we tag worship as just that first set of songs we did this morning. By the way, great choice this morning, Kyle. Glory to God. One of my favorites. As a matter of fact, it's probably one of the ones that got Paragon started. The very first conference I went to that, that God planted that seed in my heart to, to plant a church. Uh, Fee was the one that was the band that was singing and they sang glory to God. And I just remember singing that. There is no one higher. There is no one greater. There is no one like you. You know, as you sing those words, it almost gives you the feels. I'm not big on the feels, but it does give it, it, it kind of gives you those goosebumps when you're singing that and just praising God and knowing that there is no one higher. There is no one greater. But in our worship, how do we respond to that? Romans chapter 12 says, I offer my body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. As I do that, I, I do that not just with my, my life here on Sunday morning for a one-hour time slot or even that half-hour time slot that, that we're singing, but it's my time. It's my talents. It's my treasure. It's my testimony. It's my temple. It's my whole life. It's my everything. And that is what I worship Him with. And the final one is ministry. Ministry we have here is save people, serve people. Save people, serve people. But why? Why do we serve? Why do saved people serve people? It's because we are a part of a body. We are a part of a bigger organism than ourselves, and each part of the body has a function. You have a function. I have a function. Our functions are probably different, but just like in your body, if one of the functions isn't functioning properly, like this week I was waxing my car, and in the process I went to stand up, and my back decided it didn't want to stand up with me, I have felt that for the rest of the week, knowing that my back's like, I'm not functioning properly right now. It doesn't matter how much a leave I take. It doesn't matter how much icy hot I rub on it. It's tight. We recognize when things aren't working right. But, you know, sometimes we don't recognize when things are all working fine. We don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, I feel great finally for the first time in I don't know how long. What if the body of Christ functioned in such a way that we didn't have to even pay attention to things that weren't functioning right? That is ministry. But why? Why do we do that? Why do we look at that this morning? Why do we gather here this morning? That's a question that is really going to be throughout the message today. Why do we do what we do? Why do we continue to do the things that we do? Is it out of routine? Is it out of repetition? Or is it out of a heart for God? And that is the question that we're going to have to ask and answer as we look at Matthew chapter 6 today. So I'm going to move this back over. And if you have your Bibles with you, I would love for you to open it to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 1 through 8, as well as 16 through 18 today. And as we're in there, there's some questions I think you really need to ask yourself. Questions that I cannot answer for you, 
but questions that you need to answer, not for me, but for God. First one is this, is why do you do what you do? What's your motivation? What are the motives behind what you do? And what is the end goal? Those questions are ones we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 6. So let's start off in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 6 today. It says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 5, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows these things, the things that you need, before you even ask them. Skipping down to verse 16, whenever you fast... Don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so the fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray that God speaks to us this morning. Father, we come to you as we look at these three things that we do. And may we reflect on why we do them. And as we do, point our hearts to you. To point our lives to you. And to give you the glory so that we aren't accepting it. We pray it in your name. Amen. So this morning we're in a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not sure if you realize that, but since June we've been saying, hey, open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5. Today we said open up to Matthew chapter 6. The thing is, is that we may be in a new section but the theme is still the same. Since we've been studying back in June, the theme is basically this, the nature of true righteousness. What is the nature of true righteousness? The true righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What does that look like? The Beatitudes. That's what we took the summer to go through, and we saw the characteristics that will mark a person who has a righteous heart. Somebody who's poor in spirit. Somebody who mourns over their sin. Somebody who is meek or has strength under control. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're a peacemaker. And because of those things, those who are unrighteous will persecute them. None of these characteristics can be produced by my own effort, but instead by a changed, regenerated heart by the Holy Spirit. It is primarily a heart issue. The next section, we see Jesus launch off and say, hey, I have not come to abolish the law, but instead, I have come to fulfill it. Even the smallest part will not pass away until it is all accomplished. And then Jesus restores the meaning of the law, which the scribes and the Pharisees had, we'll just say, distorted. He got, or he gives six specific 
illustrations in this distortion, contrasting the spirit of the law with the teachings of how to be self-righteous. So in that, we see this true righteousness keeps the spirit of the law from the heart, not just by doing things on outward actions. He said, hey, you guys all know that murder is sinful, but don't forget, anger in the heart is also there. We all know that adultery is sinful, but don't forget, lust in the heart is also there. Divorce is sinful, and it's not commanded. We need to check the heart and see what we really believe about marriage. And then you even take it from that next step, and you see that says, hey, the righteous, they're people of integrity. They don't lie. They keep their promises. And in top, on top of that, when the righteous are treated unfairly, they leave revenge up to God. They turn the other cheek. They don't go back on these personal insults, the things that we talked about last week. And as he did that, he now enters into a new section. Again, still the same. He is teach, he's going from what is being taught to now what is being practiced by the Pharisees. He's comparing and contrasting the teachings first, but now it's the practices. How are they living it out? And he calls them out pretty severely here. As you heard me read, you heard the word hypocrite that we'll talk more about, but he's calling these scribes and these Pharisees hypocrites. And in that we'll, again, like I said, dive a little deeper, but he calls them hypocrites in three specific areas, and that is giving, that is fasting and that is praying and the reason why he calls them out in those three specific areas is that those three things were specific pillars within first century Judaism and he knew that everybody knew about it so he calls them out in it all they had turned what was supposed to be an act of worship to God into an act and display of self-righteousness hey look what I do and look how well I do it their actions were right but their heart was wrong. Their motivation and why they did what they did was wrong. So again, as we've said all along, we have to remember that this is a matter of the heart. When it comes right down to it, it is a matter of the heart. Why do you do what you do? What is the heart and behind the motivation that you do? What, what moves you to act? What moves you to behave in the way that you do? Especially in the area of faith practices. Really, it could for all areas of what we do but especially in the area of faith practices standing up here I know that we all desire praise from men but in that there's an ever present danger to take the glory from God and put it on ourselves we begin to be more concerned about what everybody else sees versus what God sees the funny thing is here Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 we talked about it a handful of weeks ago Jesus says let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven but as we've read here in Matthew chapter 6 he flips it and he says hey giving praying fasting which are those good works don't let anybody see them it almost sounds like they contradict each other the cool thing is is they don't because there's a phrase at the end of each of them that sets them apart. He's actually speaking of different sins here. The first one he's talking about is fear, and the second one he's talking about is vanity. Fear and vanity. 
Because the first one, he says, hey, don't be afraid to let your light shine. That is what you were created for, to shine the light of Jesus. As a new creation, that is what we are here for, to give glory to God by people seeing our good works. On the other side, we can't boast about those good works, so instead of giving glory to God, we give glory to ourselves. Fear and vanity. And in doing both, you have to understand that we have to have the same goal. Not our glory, but glory to God. And glory to God forever. That is why we do what we do. My question again for you is, is why do you do what you do? Is it for your glory, or is it for the glory of God? The thing is, this culture that's sitting there, they would have literally been shocked by Jesus saying these things. And the reason why they would have been shocked is because that culture was all about celebrating and displaying these public displays of religion. Look how religious I am. So this crowd would have been going, wait, wait a second. This, is, this isn't the way we've been taught. This isn't the, of course, that's the whole thing about the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the way that we've been taught. And he's correcting that. So Jesus says this. He says, be careful. Be careful. If you have the King James Version, it says, take heed. Take heed or beware. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Those last five words are the difference between it and Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. To be seen by them. Why do you do what you do? What is your motive? Be careful. Be careful is a present command. Means we always need to be doing this. It reminds us to constantly be vigilant, constantly be watchful of ourselves and our actions. Am I doing this to honor and glorify God or am I doing this to gain praise from men? And Jesus says, you need to be careful because if it's about you, these next words, otherwise you have no reward with your Father in heaven. He says, hey, earthly goals of getting praise for yourself only lead to earthly rewards. I want you to let that soak in for a second. Why do you do what you do? And how will it turn out in the end? Jesus then begins starting with his, pre his points. The first one, verses two through four, illustrates, illustrates point number one, giving. Giving. Verse two, it says this, so whenever you give to the poor, I want to pause right there for just a second because every commentary I read said the exact same thing. It wasn't if, but when. He's assuming the disciples and followers of his will give. I'm just going to leave that out there because we'll talk more about money in a couple of weeks as we dive into it all. But he's assuming that we will give. So as he says that, he says, if, or sorry, when, not if, I don't want you to be blowing a trumpet. Now, I really had seriously considered bringing a trumpet. Last week, I had a giant cowboy hat. The week before that, I had my cowboy shirt on. But I thought about bringing a trumpet and thought that would just ruin everything. People would be like, I, I can't get past that. So I decided to go ahead and park that and set it off to the side. But what he's saying is, in this, some people think it was literal that Pharisees actually had people blowing trumpets as they walked in to do their giving. Others say, no, it was just them bragging a whole lot. But either way, he says, don't do it. He says, don't go, hey, look at me while I put money in the tithe and offering box. Drop extra heavy coins in there so they clank real loud. So everybody turns and goes, what was that? And you're like, it was me. Th th that's not what he wants us to do. If, if it comes down to the, the, hey, there's people in need. Obviously, we have Hurricane Ivan that has created some massive destruction in Florida. 
If there's people in need, you're not going to step up on Facebook and say, in your social media posts, I just want to let you all know that I donated blank amount of money because I am that person. That, that is not what he wants us to do. Instead, he says, don't do that because that's what the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets with one specific purpose, to be applauded by people. He says, don't do that. There's a word there, I think, like I said already, we need to look at. That's that word, hypocrite. You may already know what hypocrite is, but this will be just a quick refresher if you do. The word hypocrite was actually originally used to refer to a play actor who played on stage at a theater. When it's used in the Old Testament and New Testament, it was primarily used to say that you're pretending. That you're pretending. You're pretending to be something that you're not. And not unlike today, people who were actors and actresses, they lived for the applause of the masses. They lived for the awards. They lived for the fame. They lived for the recognition, recognition of their greatness. That is what they wanted. The hypocrites that Jesus refers to here are the spiritual play actors that were not living for the glory of God, but instead they were living for the applause of the masses. They were living for the rewards that were temporary. They were living for the fame. They wanted glory for themselves. They were acting. Do you know what that means? They were not real. They were not real. They actually had on a mask. That's how you changed characters back in the old days as you took off one mask and you put on another but you covered up the real thing with that mask. He says, you put on the appearance of something that you're not. Jesus says, don't wear a mask when it comes to your faith. He says, be real. Be real. You may think you're gaining something by being fake and getting applause from everyone around, but the truth is you're only gaining worldly applause and not applause from your Father in heaven. The question would have to be is, is who's your audience? Who do you want applause from? As Christians, our audience should be one. The one. That should all be the reason why we do what we do. So what does Jesus say about giving in verse 3? He says, but when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So again, not if, but when. When you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That seems to be a strange statement. But going back to last week, if you remember, the right hand is the dominant hand. That whole slapping across the face. It was really funny last week, by the way, when I said, hey, when you slap somebody on the right cheek, what do you do? And everybody was like, and I was watching this. I'm like, you're all throwing me way off by doing that, by the way. And then I'm like, no, you got to backhand them to get them across the right cheek. And everyone went, like, yes, now we got that, everything's down. So the right hand is the dominant hand. The right hand is the one that you're going to be giving the gift with. He says, I don't want the left hand to know. Now, why would he say that? Different people have taken different ways with this, but really I think there's two things. One, don't let others know what you're doing so they don't celebrate you in it. But even two would be, don't let your own left hand know what the right hand is doing. Don't applaud yourself for what you're doing. Don't go, man, I, I am so good. Look at this check that I'm dropping in the tithe and offering box. Everybody in the church is going to love me, but I love me even more. Th that is not the approach that we're supposed to take. It says, number verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, okay, we have to be careful. Because all three of these, it says, and your Father will reward you. But we can't be living for that reward because then we think it's about us. 
It's about God. It's about Jesus. We have to be careful. What is our motive? What is, who is our audience? Is it to receive a reward from God or is it just to get God himself? He is reward enough. Now, while people are sitting there still processing that, Jesus moves to the second of our spiritual disciplines, and that is one of praying. And we'll spend more time on praying next week as we break down verses 9 through 15 in the Lord's Prayer. But for today, I want to look at prayer in its simplest form, and that is this. Communication and conversation with God. Communication and conversation with God. And I'm going to make a blanket statement here, and if I include you in that and it doesn't fit you, I apologize. But praying is something that is hard for us to do. Of all the things that are listed within spiritual discipline, spiritual disciplines being the things that help us and form us to be more like Christ, things like reading our Bible, giving, fasting, praying, worship, attending and fellowshipping, and and, and just sacrifice. Praying seems like the most difficult one that is there. I, I don't know about you, but it is for me things on how to pray. And the first thing he says is this, I want you to pray with sincerity. Sincerity. In Matthew chapter uh, 6, verses 5 through 8, he breaks it down. First one, sincerity says, whenever you pray, again, when, not if, you must not be like the hypocrites. Don't be, pretend to be something that you're not. Because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners to be seen by people. We aren't doing it for a show. That's the way they do it. And the way they do it is fake. Be real and pray with sincerity. It says, truly I tell you, they have their reward. Now that's a tough statement because basically what Jesus is saying is they want praise from men, they got it. But that's all they're going to get. That's all they're going to get at all. How do we know when we're being hypocritical and not sincere when we pray. Well, I say ask yourself this question. Do you pray differently in public than you do in private? And by differently, I mean this. Time, the words that you use, the flow that comes from you, and even just the the, the heart genuineness. Is it different in public than it is in private? So how do we pray with sincerity? Well, I'm glad you asked because Jesus answers in verse six. But when you pray, I want you to go into your private room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will will reward you. As we read this, the first thing I want to do is I want to make sure we are not misunderstanding this. He is not condemning public prayer. He is not condemning prayer meetings. So anybody who doesn't come to our third Thursday prayer and be like, well, no, Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, you don't get to use that as an excuse. That's not what he's doing here. What he is doing here is he's actually saying, I want you to not focus on those things in your own life and make it a formality or a ritual. I want you to, like last week, make it personal. In this personal prayer, we can't just sit back and let corporate prayer take and be our time. We have to pray sincerely from our hearts. And then the next thing is we have to pray secretly. And that's kind of an odd thing to see. But as he says, we need to find a private place. We need to not be distracted. We need to have our focus. And our focus should be on who? God. The Father who is in heaven. This is between you and and him. There's no need for a show. There's no need for an audience. 
There's no need to, to drag it all out. And that's the reason why he uses the word in secret. Twice in verse 4, twice in verse 6, and twice in verse 18. That word in secret is, is this is you and God. The audience of one. We're laying ourselves out in who we really are. We're not trying to put on a show. We talked about integrity, excuse me, a few weeks ago. But the basic definition of integrity is, is who you are when nobody is looking. That is our time with prayer with God, when we are in secret. It's who we are when nobody is looking except God. It's who we are before him. It's who you are when God's the only one watching. This is how we come to him. There's that old song, Just As I Am. Without one plea, here I am. All my warts, all my stains, all my brokenness. God, here I am. And the war isn't going to be because men are telling you how great of a prayer you are. But instead, your reward will be that connection between you and the Father in heaven. Both now and forever. That's what we see unfolding here. So first, Jesus says, hey, pray sincerely. Second, he says, pray secretly. And then third, he says, pray specifically. Pray specifically. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles. Since they imagine they'll be heard by their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Specifically, different versions say different things. Don't babble. Don't heap up empty praises. Don't use vain, thoughtless, meaningless words. That's not how we're supposed to pray. And he says, don't do it because that's what the Gentiles do. Now, why do you throw in that Gentile or pagan depending upon which version you look at? Well, it's because of this. Because they are praying to something that doesn't exist or that something that cannot answer their prayers. I don't know about you guys. We like to watch The Amazing Race. And we watch it every Wednesday night. And this last Wednesday night, they have a motivational speaker team that was on there. And in the middle of her struggle, she prayed to the universe. And I just started laughing, going, it just sounds as ridiculous as it actually is to pray to a created thing. I remember watching not too long ago uh, one of the survival shows I can't remember which one it was exactly it was one of the survival shows where they sent a person out with a camera and the guy was lost in some place so he stopped he made an idol with his own hands and then he worshipped and prayed to it I mean just, just pause for a second and, and let that process he made it with his own hands and then he worshipped it it reminds me of one of my favorite stories in all the Bible where Elijah's going up against the prophets of Baal and Azra. And in that, they're praying and asking for their God to send down fire and he begins to mock them. And we won't get into all the mocking that he does, but it's classic. It's amazing the things that he says to them. And he's like, hey, why isn't your God answering? It's because they're not real. Don't babble like the pagans. It doesn't matter how much you repeat it. It's not going to change anything. It doesn't matter how much you memorize a prayer if there's no heart behind it and you're not talking with a real relationship. If you're not connected with the Father, pray specifically. Pray secretly. Pray with sincerity. These are the things that Jesus is saying. We have to have that heart. We have to have it come from the heart and connect. And then there's days, your days you're like, I just don't even know what to pray. Well, you know what? Say that. 
I don't know, God. I don't even know what to pray. That's the beauty of this next part of the verse. In verse 8, don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. He's aware. He's aware of your needs. He's aware of your heart. He's, a, he's aware and he is able, if it's in his will, to answer the prayer that, that, that you are praying. And you say, well, if that's the case, then why do we pray? Well, that's a whole nother sermon all in itself on why we pray, but I'll give you the short, simple answer from John Calvin's commentary on this very specific verse of Matthew 6, 8. He says this, believers do not pray with a view of informing God about the things unknown to him or of exciting him to do his duty or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray, we pray, in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises, that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom. In a word, they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect, both for themselves and for others, all good things. That's why we pray. It puts us in line with God. It doesn't put God in line with us. That is why we pray. And we'll talk more about that next week as we look at 9 through 15. So we're going to jump past 9 through 15 and we're going to hit verse 16. 16 through 18, if we look at this third discipline, one that we probably don't talk about enough. But why do we do what we do? And the third discipline is fasting. Fasting. It's something we rarely talk about in the church. Something that we rarely do. I think it's been a few years since we even did a 40-day fast during Lent leading up to Easter and praying for Easter. I remember, gosh, it was probably six or seven years ago. We weren't even in this building, so it has to be at least five that we did the Daniel fast. And we laid it out there as we prayed for what God would have us to do, I think, so this building would even open up. But what's a fast? It's abstaining from eating, drinking, or other activities, some sort of self-denial, in order to heighten our prayer life, our devotion, our mourning, our grief, and even our repentance. Something you can do as a group, something you can do as an individual. But what I found is that fasting, it brings our focus back to God and takes it off of all the things that we think we need. The things that we think we have to have, whether we just give up sugar or whether we give up caffeine or we give up Facebook or whatever social media platform you're on, the things that we think we need, we give up. We say instead of going to those things in whatever time manner we have, we go to God instead. In verse, just like the other two, he says when we fast, not if. And then he also says don't draw attention to yourself in the process to show how holy you are. Look at what it says in verse 16. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces so their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. There it is once again. All three of them have the same result. It's all about the show. It's all about the show. And they're making their faces look unattractive so people will say, oh, what's wrong? Because negative tension is still attention. It's still drawing attention to myself. And they're doing the action so they can be seen on the outside. But like everything else, it's not about the outside. It's about the heart behind it. So what does Jesus say? Verse 17, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in se sees in secret will reward you. 
Now that sounds interesting because we go, oh, we've got to put oil on, we have to wash our face. Well, here's the thing, something we've been talking about throughout all of this, and that is this. Remember the culture. Remember the culture. What Jesus is actually saying here is that for you and I, we don't have to go rub our faces with oil or wash our face. Just be normal. That's what he's actually saying because guess what? They lived in a dry desert climate. You know what oil does? It moisturizes your skin so it doesn't look disfigured. You know what washing your face does? It gets the dirt off so it doesn't look disfigured. It's what they did all the time. He said, just go through your regular, normal, be real activities. Don't try and draw attention to yourself by doing something weird. Just be normal. I know that's difficult. Normal can be a relative definition for some. But I think you know what he's trying to say here. Be normal. Be real. They did those things. And as you do, you may not be seen by men and assumed to be ultra holy, but you will be seen by your father. And he is the audience we're going for. Guys, this whole series we've called Living the Good Life. Can I tell you that this is living the good life? What Jesus is laying out here is living the good life. When you're in a relationship with Jesus and you're a faithful disciple, now we'll be living the good life now. And the great thing is, there will be results that we'll be living an even greater and better life later. That's the promises of reward to each of these disciplines. So if you're going to boil it down, practicing these spiritual dif- disciplines, growing to be more like Christ. In your life and in my life, it's not meant to be done in front of men to gain attention to say, man, he is so spiritual. She is so spiritual. It's about doing it for the audience of the one. Why? Because he sees every action. He knows every motive. He knows our motivations. He's the one that we should focus on. He's the one that we should aim to please with our lives. All that really matters is how we live our lives to glorify God. That's all that really matters. That's the only thing that's going to last into eternity. How we live, how we give, how we pray, how we face, uh, fast, and really how we do everything else. How you parent, how you aunt or uncle, how you grandparent, how you show up to work, how you show up to school. The attitudes and actions that you have matter as they glorify God. Be that light, Matthew five sixteen. but at the same time, don't take the praise on yourself. That is where we find ourselves. We have to ask ourselves, why do we give? Why do we serve? Why do we do what we do? Why do we worship? Why do we evangelize? Why do we disciple? Why do we even attend church? Hopefully, the answer isn't to make yourself feel better. Hopefully, it's to bring glory to God. And maybe there's an even better question that's hanging out there. Not why we do what we do, but why don't you do it? Why don't you serve? Why don't you give? Why don't you disciple? Why don't you evangelize? Why don't you worship? Those are tough questions, but that's what Jesus is getting at here. Why do we do what we do? The answer should be everything we do is for God and for His glory. Period. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word as we look at Matthew chapter 6. 
the Sermon on the Mount has been a challenge. A challenge to the way we live our regular lives. I know it has been for me personally. In the way that I give of my time and my talents and my treasure, my testimony, and even my very life. The way that I pray sometimes, both publicly and in private. And the way that I fast, pull myself away from the things that I think I need to turn my attention to the one thing I do need. God, there's so much in this, so much to swallow, so much to apply. But I pray today that you're speaking to hearts and I pray today that you're speaking to minds and I pray today that we apply these things to our lives on why we do what we do, that we can answer that question. It is for your glory. And if we're not doing it, that God, that you've pricked our hearts in a way to say, okay, this is what I need to do and why. Not because I've been guilted into it, not because I I want the show, but because I want to give you glory. May that be our prayer today, that our lives give you glory. We pray in your name. Amen.